It's important to remember that every part of the Bible is God's word and is profitable. But there are some parts of the Bible that are more significant than others. There are some verses that inevitably carry a lot of weight. There's a lot of truth that are communicated in certain verses. And often those are verses that we tend to know well and we would teach our children. John 3:16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And the verse we want to look at this evening is probably the most significant verse in the book of Proverbs. In some ways, it is summarizing the message of the book of Proverbs, and that is Proverbs 1-7. So you would open up your Bibles and look at Proverbs 1-7. Proverbs 1-7 is standing at the very beginning of the book, telling us what is at the heart of this book. And one of the reasons I'd say this is maybe the most significant is because this idea is repeated several times throughout the book. It's repeated at the end of the opening section in chapter 9. A similar idea is found in verse, chapter 9, verse 10. At the very end of the book, we're reminded again of the significance of the fear of the Lord. But at the very beginning here, we find this phrase, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so as I said, I think this is at the heart of what Solomon is teaching us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so I want to to work through this phrase by asking three questions. First, what does Solomon mean when he says the fear of the Lord? And second, how is the fear of the Lord the beginning of knowledge? And then third, what is the opposite of the fear of the Lord. So let's begin with our first question. What does Solomon mean when he talks about the fear of the Lord? And to begin with, I think it's important to understand it's, it's in a sense, we could call it a, a, an attitude or a way of thinking that someone actually has to, in some ways, adopt because it is possible not to have it. And I encourage you to get your fingers ready because we're going to look at several different passages of Scripture this evening. Occasionally, I will read a passage to you just so uh, we can not get too bogged down and be here till nine o'clock tonight. But I want you to see several of these passages. And so let's begin by going to Exodus 9 and verse 30. Exodus 9 and verse 30. Exodus 9 and verse 30, Moses is talking to Pharaoh. And he says this, But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. We'll go back further to Genesis 20 and verse 11. Genesis 20 and verse 11. Here, Abraham, explaining why he has has lied and said that Sarah was his sister and not his wife, Verse 11, it says, Because I thought, surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. And so as Solomon thinks about the fear of the Lord, he he understands there are some people who do not have the fear of the Lord. And so he's encouraging something that, in a sense, we have to seek it for ourselves. We have to be people who intentionally adopt the fear of the Lord. 
Now, I, before we get into the specifics of what the fear of the Lord is, I want to, to answer a potential objection that we might have even thinking about this. We're in Proverbs, which is in the Old Testament. I just pointed to two other passages in the Old Testament. There are some people who would say, well, in the New Testament, the whole idea of the fear of the Lord is really gone now. I was talking to someone even this summer who was saying, in the Old Testament, we have a God of judgment. But in the New Testament, we have a God of second chances. as a God of grace. And so we don't have the fear of the Lord in the New Testament. Well, first of all, let's go to, to Jeremiah 32. Now, I realize this is still the Old Testament. But in Jeremiah 32, we have God describing what he's going to be doing in the new covenant that he makes with the people of Israel, which is really what the New Testament largely is talking about. It's a new covenant. How will God deal with people in the future? In Jeremiah 32, 40, he says this, I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them to do them good, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. And so in this everlasting covenant, what is God the Father going to do? Make sure his people fear him. Now let's go to the New Testament. Let's look at Romans 3. We're studying in Romans 5. And in Romans 5, Paul has already gotten to the, the place in which he's talked about salvation. He's now beginning to describe what it means in light of God's work of justification in us. But at the end of chapter 3, he's bringing to a conclusion his point that all people are sinful and therefore stand in, in, under God's wrath and judgment. And one of the ways he describes our sin in Romans 3.18 is this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So what characterizes people who are not right with God? They don't fear him. Go over to Luke chapter 12. Luke 12 and verse 4. These are the words of Jesus. Luke 12, 4, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, Fear him. Fear Jesus is commanding his disciples to fear God. In 2 Corinthians 7, if you would go there, 2 Corinthians 7, Paul is describing, in light of the promises that we have from God, what we are to do. Promises in which God has, has said he will be a God to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Or Colossians 3, you don't have to turn there, Colossians 3.22, Slaves, obey those who are your human masters in everything, not with eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. In Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
And so the fear of the Lord is something that, that God wants for His people today. And so if that is the case, then what does Solomon mean when he's talking about the fear of the Lord? And, and I want to highlight three aspects or three elements that I think the Scripture would point to as we think about what the fear of the Lord is. And the first element is that the fear of the Lord is a reverence or respect for the majesty of God. And that's probably one that, that you have heard before. That when we think about the fear of the Lord, there, there's a sense in which we stand in awe before God in light of, of who he is. And just to see one passage of that, go to Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah 10 and verse 6. Jeremiah 10, 6. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great. And great is your name in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. It is what is owed you. Why? For among all the wise men of the nations and all their kingdoms, there is none like you. And so one of the things when we're thinking about the fear of the Lord is we're saying God is majestic. God is great. There is no one like God. And therefore, we stand in awe before Him. We give Him reverence. We give Him the respect that is due His name. That is a central part of what it means to fear the Lord. But probably an aspect that's emphasized more often in the Bible is that the fear of the Lord is a commitment to obeying God's word. Go to Deuteronomy. You look at a few different passages in Deuteronomy that, that highlight this truth. Deuteronomy in chapter 4. In verse 10. Deuteronomy 4.10. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. Now, now this is a time in which the people had a great sense of God's majesty and power. He's speaking to them out of, out of a cloud and they're, in a sense, terrified. But that's not what Moses points to. When the Lord said to me, assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. And so it's God's words that enable them to fear him and then they teach their children. And so there's this commitment to God's teaching. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Verse 12. Assemble the people, the men and the women and the children and aliens who are in your town, so that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words of this law. Their children who have not known will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live on the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. And I think the, the children who have not known it is really pointing to they have not seen God's miraculous work of bringing them out of Egypt. But they will hear God's words. They will be taught God's words and therefore they will learn to fear God. So the fear of the Lord is something that we learn. And how do we learn it? We learn it through the Word of God. And as we learn it, 
We have a commitment to follow what God has said. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy 17 and verse 18. I think this is especially significant because this would have been something that Solomon would have known because Solomon would have had to do this. It's talking about a king, the kings of Israel. And it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. How? By carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. And so the fear of the Lord is this commitment to follow God. Psalm 128.1 says this, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. And so what does it mean to fear the Lord? To obey him. To follow his commands and statutes. Here in Deuteronomy, go back to, to chapter 5. Deuteronomy 5 and verse 29. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and their sons forever. And then down at chapter 6 and verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land we are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. And so one of the, the key elements to the fear of the Lord is obedience to God. It's a commitment to doing what he has said. Or as one Old Testament scholar has put it, that fear is faith as it submits to his will. It's a submission to what God has said. And so there is a reverence for God's majesty. There is a commitment to follow God's word. But then a third element is fear. Or perhaps, you say it more explicitly this way, a dread of displeasing our Holy Father. Go back to Proverbs. This time go to Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8 and verse 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Job 28, 28 says this. To mankind he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Now, you may remember a few weeks back, I mentioned that in, in Hebrew poetry, you often have two little segments right next to each other. And they relate to each other in different ways. And one of the common ways they relate is saying the same thing in a different way. And that's what's happening there in that verse. You have the fear of the Lord that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. And so wisdom and understanding are saying something basically the same thing. And the fear of the Lord and to turn away from evil is saying basically the same thing. The fear of the Lord is a dread of evil or sin. Then in a sense, there is a hatred 
for sinning. There is a, a, a fear that I would sin. There's a desire not to sin. And I think we can call that a kind of fear because when we think about sin, we understand there is a holy God who judges sin. The book of Proverbs highlights that. It points out several different times man thinks his ways are right, but the Lord examines the heart. And one way that I've heard it illustrated is that if we think about the fear of the Lord, in some ways it's, it's like thinking about the fear of electricity. That, that generally we're, we're very thankful for electricity and we probably don't walk around all the time just like in dread of electricity. But at the same time, if we're going to be working with it, we understand this is really powerful. And this could really hurt me. And so I want to make sure I deal with electricity in the right way. There's a proper way to interact with it. There's a proper way to relate to it. And there's an improper way to relate to it that would be damaging to me. And in a sense, as we're talking about the fear of the Lord, we are saying there is a proper way to relate to God. And when I relate in that way, it is good. But if I do not relate in the proper way, it is damaging to me. It is harmful to me. And the reason it's harmful, I think, is because of the relationship that we have to God. That we are his by creation. And if we are saved, we are his by redemption. And that means as we live our lives, we recognize he is our God and we are responsible to him. And that changes how we live. I think in some ways that's highlighted by the, the, the very words that are used. Solomon talks about the fear of the Lord. And if you look back in Proverbs 1 and verse 7, you'll see most likely your translation has the word Lord in all, in all capital letters. And most translations do that when they're translating the, the word Yahweh, the covenant name of God, the name by which he demonstrates his commitment to his people. And so as we're talking about the fear of the Lord, we're talking about how we relate to the covenant-keeping God of the Bible. Then we're not talking about some general respect for principles or first causes. We're talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and how we are called to relate to him. And as we relate to him, there is a kind of fear that we are to have. But I think Theologians in the past have helpfully distinguished between two kinds of fear we could have as we think about God. One kind of fear they call slavish or servile fear. Another kind of fear they call filial or familial fear. And to kind of see this teased out, go to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20 and verse 20. Actually, let's go back to verse 18 just so we can get to see the context here. This is right after the ten, God's given the Ten Commandments. In verse 18, all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. So what, what is it? They're afraid. They're afraid of the power of God. They're afraid of his holiness. 
Then Moses said, then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not God speak to us or we will die. And what does Moses say in verse 20? Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. For God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of God may remain with you so that you may not sin. And so what does he say? Don't be afraid, but be afraid. Don't be afraid in this way, but be afraid in this way. So what is a a slavish or a servile kind of fear? I think that's the kind of fear that the demons have in James 2.19. James says, demons believe in God and they shudder or tremble because they're terrified of his judgment and that's it. I think it's actually the kind of fear we find in Matthew 25. So if you would turn to Matthew 25 so you can see this. Matthew 25, we're going to be looking at verse 24. This is the parable of the talents. The master gives talents to his different servants and he leaves and he comes back and the one who has 10 gets 10 more, the one who has 5 gets 5 more. And he goes to the one who has 1. And in verse 24, the one who had also received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. I think the kind of fear that this is talking about, that the kind of slavish fear, is a fear that is only concerned about judgment and therefore only obeys to try to avoid judgment. And people in the past have pointed out this is really at the heart of all false religions. Because the heart of all false religions is saying there are gods that are more powerful than I am and so how can I make sure those gods aren't angry at me? So what can I do to to pacify them in some way? And all I'm really concerned about is I, don't, I want them off my back. I don't want to have to worry about the consequences of my actions. And I'm afraid that I might have to face those. And that is a, a, a slavish fear. But what is the right kind of fear? Well, it's filial or familial because it's saying the kind of fear that demonstrates a loving relationship. A relationship of like a father to a son. So go to Psalm 130. Psalm 130 and verse 3. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities... Oh, Lord, who could stand? I mean, God, if if you held all of us to account for our sin, when judgment swept over us, we would all be lost. Verse 4. But there is forgiveness with you. That God doesn't hold all our sin against us. That if we come to him humbly, we can, we can find forgiveness and we can have a relationship restored with him. And why does he do this? Why does he offer us this forgiveness? And what does the verse say? 
that you may be feared. Now, I think we tend to think, well, that God would be loved or something like that. But he actually says so that he would be feared. That we would be able to have the right kind of relationship with him. One that, that if I say it this way, doesn't say, hey, there's forgiveness, and so sin doesn't matter. But wow, there is forgiveness. And so I don't want to ever displease the Lord again. That forgiveness separated me from God. That sin separated me from God. And that forgiveness restored that relationship. And I don't want to displease my father. This this is the kind of fear of of a son or a daughter with a good, loving, earthly father that doesn't just fear because they're afraid I will receive physical punishment, but is also fearing to have their father look at them and show that sign of hurt and disappointment. And therefore, they hate sin because they know it displeases their father. And we are called to hate sin because we know it displeases our father. Jeremiah 32, 28 says this, They shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way, so that they will fear me always. For their own good, and for the good of their children after them. That in order for them to be his people, and for him to be their God, they need to fear him. And that's for their good. So in this fear, there is this concern about our relationship with God. And I think Peter points to that really in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter 1.17, if you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Yes, he is the judge, but he's also your father. And therefore, we recognize we live in the awareness of God as the majestic God, as the one whose word we're called to obey because we dread displeasing our Holy Father. I'm going to kind of summarize our discussion of what the fear of the Lord means by by citing a few other people who tried to summarize it. Sinclair Ferguson said that this right kind of fear of God is that indefinable mixture, which is always a great way to start a definition, right? What is it? It's the thing you can't really say, right? But it's something like this mixture of reverence and pleasure, joy and awe, which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he has done for us. It is a love for God, which is so great that we would be ashamed to do anything which would displease or grieve him and makes us happiest when we are doing what pleases him. Derek Kidner, an Old Testament scholar, says The fear of God is that filial relationship which, in the most positive of senses, puts us securely in our place and God in his. Charles Bridges. The fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence, that relational reverence, by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. Or a song that we sing Where it all begins has a bridge that says this, to fear the Lord is to stand in awe, to love what's right and hate what's wrong. 
The fear of the Lord is to grow in love for our great God who rules us all. So this is the fear of the Lord. Now we're going to be much shorter in our next two questions. Our second question is, how does the fear of the how is the fear of the Lord the beginning of knowledge? Now, in the beginning, there's a couple different ways to understand it. One is the first in order. It's the first thing. And that's certainly, actually, Solomon uses a slightly different word in Proverbs 9 when he says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And there it is very clearly the, the first thing you do. But the word he uses in chapter 1 can also have the idea of the, the principle or the, the chief thing. And I think there's probably some truth to both. If I say it this way, some people have said that the, the fear of the Lord is the first and controlling principle as we think about knowledge or wisdom. Now, many people compare it to the alphabet. If you're going to know how to read and write, what's the first thing you have to learn? The alphabet. And once you learn the alphabet, you just toss it to the side, right? No. That's now the foundation for everything else you do. You're constantly going back to the kinds of rules that you learned of, of how language works. You know, things like I before E, except after C, and the sound that is A is a neighboring way, and weekends and holidays and all throughout May, and, and those, kinds of, those kinds of things that we look to and say, this is how we build language. And so how do we understand knowledge? How do we gain wisdom? It starts and continues on the fear of the Lord. And in a sense, the idea of, of it being the foundation of knowledge is that we can only know things rightly when we know them in relationship to God. That God is the one who made this world and God is the one who interprets this world. And so there is nothing in this world that we can understand fully apart from God. And so he is truly the beginning of knowledge. And the opposite of the fear of the Lord being the beginning of knowledge, go back to Proverbs 1 and verse 7. The second part of this verse, fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fool is someone we will see often in the book of Proverbs. The fool is worse than the one we talked about last week, the simple or the naive. In a sense, the book of Proverbs is written for the simple or the naive, the person who does not know what they need to know, and therefore they need wisdom and guidance. The fool is someone who does not care to know. He despises wisdom and destruction. And here it's not so much like despises and it's icky, but despises and just sees it as having no value. It's of no worth. Next, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, we'll look at, at wisdom calling out and saying, come, get wisdom. And the fool says, not interested. I, I don't care about understanding. I don't care about wisdom. I don't really care about knowledge. In a sense, we can say it this way, the opposite of the fear of the Lord is an arrogant assumption that we know what is right. It's like Proverbs 3. It's to lean on our own understanding. It's not to recognize God as God. And it's important to, to realize the fool in the Bible is not someone who is unintelligent. 
In fact, the fool, is we're talking about just intellect, might be smarter than most wise people. The issue of the fool is not knowledge, it's will. He places no value on what God and his word says. And in so doing, ignores the truth. Ignores the way he's meant to live. And that's why he's a fool. Because he is not seeing the value of God's wisdom. He's not recognizing the value of God's knowledge and understanding and discipline and instruction. So Solomon begins by pointing to this central truth. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. So if I could just briefly draw out a few implications for us. The first is really important as we work through this study in Proverbs. As I said, Solomon starts here. He comes here again at the end of the introductory section in chapter 9. He comes here at the end, at the very end of the book, as he describes the, the, the virtuous woman. And he says, charm is fleeting, but the woman who fears the Lord, she's to be praised. And so what's the heart of it? The heart of it is fear of the Lord. And that means everything we look at in the book of Proverbs has to be understood in light of this truth. We cannot grasp anything unless we begin with the fear of the Lord. Unless we have that proper reverence for him, that commitment to obey him, and that desire not to displease him. And so he's going to talk about very practical things. But those practical things cannot be divorced from the relationship that we are called to have with God. A second implication is that in light of the fact that that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, I think we should have a, a, a higher dose of skepticism for those who do not know God and yet would tell us how we should live. Now, can people who don't know God know things? And the answer is yes, because they're still made in his image. And, and I think if I had more time, maybe we could tease this out more, but, but maybe just briefly, the, the closer we are to the, the, the central things about how we're called to live and serve God, the more we need to, to be very doubtful of those who don't know God. And the further away we get from that, the, the more confidence we can have in that. So if, if I'm going to someone and they're saying, this is how your heart works and it's not working properly and this is what needs to happen to get your heart working properly, I don't need to say, well, what do you think about God? If I'm going to someone and they says, this is what's wrong with your car and this is how we can fix it, I don't necessarily need to say, well, I don't know about that because he's not a Christian. But if someone's saying, this is how you can have a marriage that is healthy or this is, this is how you should parent your children. We need to be thinking, are they coming to this mindset with the fear of the Lord? And if not, I should be very careful because they don't have the first thing they need to really know what God has done with his world and how he wants us to live in it. Related to that, is that's really why we have a Christian school here. 
not the only reason, but that's a very central reason to why we have a Christian school, because we live in a country that forces everyone to receive education as a child. And the schools that are set up by the government are intentionally designed not to start with God. Does that mean everything they say is wrong? No. But it does mean, as we are seeking to to teach our children, that we have to, in a sense, do extra work if our kids are in a school system like that. So it's not sinful, but it does mean now we're having to, to, to recognize that we have to be especially active. Now, if you send your kids to the Christian school here, do you say, well, I don't need to worry about teaching them the fear of the Lord. That's what Dr. Hubbard is doing, and it's out of my hands. No. Any more than you should think, well, my children are in Pathfinders tonight, and Pastor Jacob's going to teach them the fear of the Lord, or, or, or Nathan Paz going to teach my teens the fear of the Lord. It's our responsibility as parents. But if they're here in the school, or if they're in the church, hopefully we're working together now. And we're not working in opposition to one another on this issue. Because if we want them truly to understand God's world, it has to come within the framework that knows God and understands the world in relationship to him. Which leads me then to a final implication. That as we are beginning this study in the book of Proverbs, I think we have to ask ourselves, do I fear the Lord? that we will not gain the wisdom and knowledge and instruction and shrewdness and insight and all the things we looked at a couple of weeks ago that Proverbs is designed to give us. We will not get those things unless we start here. Am I properly related to God? If I can continue on what First Peter says, you live your lives here, you conduct yourselves here in fear because you know you were redeemed, not with corruptible things, like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. That if you have not been redeemed by Jesus Christ, you cannot fear God, and therefore you cannot truly know him or his world. And if you have been redeemed, are you living with this reverence for the majestic God, with this commitment to follow his will, and with this desire to do whatever we can not to displease our Holy Father. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to be in your word so that we might grow in our fear, to have a heart that longs to reverence you, to obey you, and to to remain rightly related with you. And that we would be aware in all that we do that we are yours, that you see us, you know us, you judge us. And so we would walk in the fear of God. Or if we want our church to be a truly God-fearing church, so that we might be people who know We might be people who have wisdom, who receive instruction from you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.